ask you to bless this time. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word and your spirit to be with us. And we thank you for each person that's here and for your love and your care. We lift up the individuals in this church that that are in need and and all that's going on. And we thank you for the Christmas time that we're entering into to celebrate your birth for the salvation of this world. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Second Chronicles chapter 5. Uh, the items have been brought into, the temple has been completed, the items are starting to be pro, uh, put into the temple, and we're left off at verse 11. And so we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course, also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph and Heman and Jeruathun, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them a hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking of the Lord, and when they lifted up their voice with the trumpet and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. And so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So we're going to look at here. They put everything into the, into the temple that had been in the tabernacle. They put the Ark of the Covenant in its place. They uh, set up all the altar of incense and all of the stuff in there. And then it says that the priest had come out of the holy place. And that would be the inner, not the inner room, but the outer, outer room where the altar of incense and the menorah and the t altar of show, table of showbread were at. That they were... They came out of it and it says, then then as a parenthesis, it says, for all the priests that were present there were sanctified and did not wait by course. If you remember, David had divided up the priest by, into 24 courses because there were so many of them there was, that they, they couldn't just have them all working all the time. So David had broken them up by course. And it says here, even though they had been broken up for this event especially, they were all present. And it kind of makes sense because this was a big deal. Uh, could you imagine being the priest who wasn't present at the start, uh, at the setting up of the temple? Uh, you know, you'd, you'd almost be looked at as a second-class priest at that point, you know. So I think every one of them wanted to be there. So they brought all this. All the, all the priests are there. Also, all the Levites and the singers, and it lists Asaph, Heman, and Jehuda and their sons, and they were all arrayed in white linen. So here we have this list of all the people. All the Levites are there. All the priests are there. Which means David, they had so many, David had split them into 24 courses. So I don't know how many people are here, but we have probably hundreds, if not a thousand or so, priests and Levites serving because David had broken them up into 20 groups, 24 groups to be able to serve the temple, uh, the tabernacle. So we have a lot of Levites, a lot of, lot of uh, priests there. And it says, they had cymbals, psalteries, and harps, and stood on the east end of the altar. And besides those singers, they had 120 priests sound, sounding trumpets. 
or, or shofars. So we have a large group of people bringing in praise. And when I read things like this, every once in a while you get somebody who says musical instruments don't belong in the church, you know, or certain instruments. You know, uh, for a long time, the only instrument that people wanted in a church was an organ. If you, you know, then they started accepting pianos. Uh, and then over time they go, okay, well, we'll accept guitars maybe. But they didn't want cymbals and drums and, and all these other things. But, you know, it's very interesting all through the scriptures when God talks about his worship, we find drums and cymbals and loud, clanging, <laughs> noisy stuff, you know, that if played right, you know, is very worship-oriented. If played wrong, is very distracting. But, you know, I just look at this and I'm thinking... God gave us music. And when it's used properly, it can bring great worship. And here we're seeing cymbals, psalteries, which were kind of a guitar type of instrument, a lyre, like a lyre. And we had people playing harps. Now, this isn't the great big harp that most people think of when they think of harps. You know, probably basically a handheld harp uh, with multiple, multiple strings on it. Uh, some form of guitar stringed instrument type thing. And then you had 120 priests blowing the shofars. All of this was to praise God and lead the people into praise as the temple is being dedicated. And, you know, I can't imagine how loud and, and noisy this was. 120 shofars in, the, in and of itself is going to be a loud loud noise and then you have all of the singing singers singing and playing playing instruments and David had set it up that people would be playing instruments and singing in the tabernacle 24/7 these guys Asaph and his sons their job was to just praise God all the time no matter when you went into the temple they would be singing and and playing going on um, I feel sorry for any of Asaph's, Heman's, or Jedithan's sons who weren't, weren't vocally inclined or musically inclined. You're in the singing group, so you know, get used to it. Uh, I don't know. They probably had something. to Maybe, maybe they were the instrument cleaners. Who knows? Uh, copied the sheet music. But you know, we have this process here. All these people are coming together to praise God and to bring God praise by song. And, you know, one of the things about this, we read the book of Psalms, and that was David's songs that he put together. It was the basic songs that they sang for service. So as you're reading the Psalms, think about those. Those Psalms are what people sang in church. They were the verses that people sang when they went to church. The latter part of the book of Psalms is the Psalms of Ascension. These are what they sang as they climbed up... Uh, Jerusalem every year to go offer the sacrifices for the Passover. They would sing those little short psalms. And it said that every step they went up, every time they took a step up into another level, they would sing another one of those songs of ascension. And then they'd take another step, you know, another, go up another step and sing another song. And this was what God is wanting. He created us to worship him and to enjoy him. And this is very important for us. You know, I look at some Christians and I'm wondering, do you really know God? Is there any joy in your life? I've, been, I've seen some churches where if somebody smiled, they'd probably be thrown out of the church. <laughs> you know, and it's like, 
okay, what's wrong with this picture? God says he's a God of joy and of peace. And people look like all they've been doing is eating sour lemons all the time before church, and they're eating them every moment of church to keep that sour look on their face. You know, and, it, and it just bothers me when you look at this and God says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Be joyful. Give, make a loud noise. You know, give praise. And so many people aren't that way. And if you remember when David came into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem with the tabernacle, he danced before the Lord and his wife, Michael, or Michal, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, looked down on him and said he was being so undignified, he was being unkingly. Now, she had no joy in her heart for the worship of God. And we need to be very careful that we don't get this way. And, you know, in our day and age, it's kind of hard sometimes. People looking, well, we can't worship God this way. Well, the question is, why not? All right? Uh, you know, I love the hymns. I really do love the hymns. But, you know, I know at the same time, we've got to bring in the newer songs that the newer generation likes. Now, will I go as far as some of these places that blow your eardrums out of your ears on, on, on the chat on it? No, because I don't think worshiping God should hurt. And verse 13 says, And it came to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I love this. It says they came in one sound. Now, this does not mean they were all exactly the same. But this is the idea of when a huge orchestra plays and they're all on the same uh, notes and pitch and, and everything comes together and everything sounds just right. And that's the time when if one person's not playing the right note, they stand out like a sore thumb out of a huge crowd. One person playing the wrong, <laughs> wrong tune, the wrong note is not one. And so... This is the idea that we have even for us as a church. The church is one body, but each person will have their own part within that, within that. And it would be a very sad church if everybody was exactly the same. It'd kind of be scary. You know, it's been asked, if everybody was like you in the church, what would the church be like? For some people, it would be very organized. You know, some people are very organized. And, and those that are organized want everybody to be organized. Uh, you know, some people are really strong givers. And if it wasn't for those strong givers, nothing would get done. Some people are the ones that actually do, uh, accomplish the serving. And so we need the entire church to be able to get everything done. And it's an important aspect to be willing to accept other people's portion within the body. Because... Oftentimes we look down on those who don't act and, and behave the way we are. But we need to be careful of that because we need one another. We need people who serve. We need people who care for the needs of others. And we need people who are a little bit cautious. Because those who care for the needs of others sometimes will be really ready to give away everything and get caught up in every need and, and, and end up getting burnt out. Well, the cautious person needs that person who has the vision to help. Because the caution person is going, no, nah, I don't know if we should do this. I'm not sure if we should do this. You know, and they're always pulling back. And we need both of them to be able to appreciate each other's 
input into it. We need people who are those servants. We need those people who are the stable, the stable rock to be able to say, I'm the one that's going to stay stable. The one that may say, well, let's think about this before we jump off onto every little uh, thing that comes along. Because I have been in churches where they jump on every single new thing that comes along. And they are just all over the place. They're bouncing off walls this direction and this direction and this direction. And nothing ever stays moving forward because there's no rock that is you know, trying to hold them into place. We need both sides. We don't need the rock so firm that nothing ever changes. But we don't want to be so changeable that nothing ever stays the same. And we have to run this balance between all of this. And these musicians, they played as one. They lifted up their voices. And I love this. It says, for he is good. I love this statement. God is good. We need to always remember this. And I love the statement. It's very famous. We go, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Uh, And we really do need to remember this. Even when it seems like God is not being good to us, all the time, God is good. He has a good plan for us. Even when we don't see that plan, and we need to recognize him, this was their song. He is good. God is good. He has a wonderful thing for them. And then they go, and his mercy endures forever. God's mercy. I am so thankful for God's mercy because I do not get what I deserve. And I am so happy I don't get what I deserve. I'd be miserable. I'd be dead if I did what I deserve, but I'd be miserable at the very least uh, or dead if I got what I deserved. And the same for everybody else in this room. If we got what we deserved, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. And his mercy endures forever. And this is the beautiful part of this. It remains, it stays firm. And while they were singing and praising, it says, Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. God's presence and glory, his splendor, came upon the temple. Just as it had with the tabernacle, just as it had with Mount Sinai, over and over again we see the cloud of God. And basically the definition for cloud is the idea that God's glory is veiled so that we can see it. Because it is said to us if man was, that no man could see God and live. So even as bright and glorious as the shining of this cloud was, of the fiery pillar, of the, you know, all of this, it was God's glory hidden. And this is something I wonder sometimes. Do we fully understand God's glory? I don't think so at all. Even when we feel like we're experiencing God for everything that we have and his presence is so strong upon us and, and we feel on, like we're on top of a mountain because of God's glory... It's just a small thimbleful of the glory that we're experiencing. I, in one sense, can't wait to get to heaven and see what God has in store for for me and us when we fully see his 
glory and get the full dose of it because we're no longer in these fleshly bodies and we can be able to see his glory. Every time you see somebody stand before an angel, which is just a reflection of God's glory, what's the first thing they do? They fall on their face. When they see the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus incarnate, which is a small portion of his glory, they fall on their face. And when we get to heaven, we'll get to see the full extent of his glory. Sitting on the throne, what we'll see there, I have no idea. But we'll see his full glory shining, so much so that there is no sun or moon in, in, in heaven And in the new heaven and new earth, there won't be a sun and a moon. God himself will be the light. And there's no more night, no more darkness, no more shadow. His glory will fill everything. That is an amazing thought. And here, God's glory comes upon the temple and he shadows it with a cloud over the the temple, over the holy place and the holy of holies. And then in verse 14 says, So that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house. Nobody could go into it. I think they were driven back from where they were at. They were looking at it and going, this is too much. Do you remember back in Exodus when God's glory fell upon the tabernacle? And it came upon Mount Sinai. What did the people say? Moses, you go talk to God. We don't, want to ha- we don't want to go talk to him. God's presence came down. And you know, one of the wonderful things about this, when God is present, his righteousness and his holiness is palatably felt. We know of how sinful we are when we stand before, before him in his holiness. And we also see it, even as we as Christians, when we're close to God and we, are bringing, we bring God into people's lives and everything, have you ever had somebody get reactive to you and you haven't even said a word about God and, they quit, and they'll tell you things like, keep your God stuff away from me. I haven't said anything about him. I haven't said anything. Just keep God away. What's going on? You're bringing the presence and glory of God into the situation and they're reacting to their sinfulness because they're, being convicted and this is something that is very critical we get convicted when God comes in but we kind of get used to his glory and his presence after a while and forget about it sometimes and then we feel it as he intensifies it and makes it greater but we see it have you ever been around somebody you could just you just knew that they know God you could just feel the God's presence radiating from them and if you weren't in God, and if you weren't, and even that, if you're not right, if you're not right with God, all of a sudden you're feeling a little guilty. You know, I should be this way, or oh, I'm a pretty bad sinner. You know, stay away from me. But all of this comes down. God's glory filled the temple. His splendor, and literally, the word for glory in Hebrew means splendor, brightness. A brightness filled the the temple. And God covered it with the clouds so that people would not see all of the glory and be overwhelmed. But they saw enough to know that there was a presence there that they weren't able to handle and they could not minister. Nobody could go into the temple during that period of time that God's 
glory was there. And my prayer for us is that will we be totally filled with God's glory, with his righteousness, so that people start seeing God when they see us. Not that we will be God, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, but that they will see God in us and be motivated to make a decision for God. This is the important thing for us as Christians. We're left in this world to show people what God looks like. That can be in our loving of them, our giving the gospel, our, the mercy we showed to them, but God's spirit then will come along to them and convict them of their sins. And that's the spirit's job. Our job is not to go around condemning everybody. Now, that does not mean we say that what they're doing is right, that they're sinning and we don't go, oh, that's okay, God, God loves you. No, sin is sin. But my job is not to convict them and try to convict them or to get on their case. That is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come after them. My job is to show them God's love, his care, his, his tenderness. Jesus, all through his work walking in there, he cared for the sick. He cared for the lowly. Now, his hard words were for those self-righteous Pharisees. He went after them pretty hard sometimes. Why? Because they thought they were better than everybody else. And he's going, you whitewashed sepulchers, you, you know, brood of vipers. You know, he, he, had, he had really wonderful names for them. But when he was dealing with everybody else, he was very soft and tender with them and brought them to the Father by showing love and mercy. And this is where we need to be. We show love and mercy to those that are in need, and we just make sure that God's word is presented to them. Verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Then said Solomon, The Lord hath said that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built a house of habitation for you, a place for your dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. All right. So Solomon now is starting to present a petition to God and to the people. And it starts out that he stands and he reminds them of what God says. He says, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Now this is an interesting statement that I looked at. The word for thick darkness is used in the Bible 15 other times. Oh, really? Wow. 15 times. Thick darkness, uh, which basically means uh, the glory of God that is veiled. Uh, one of them is, is Exodus 20, verse 21, and the people were far off when God came upon Mount Sinai with a thick cloud of darkness. And if you remember that one, it also says there were thunderings and lightnings, and God literally, 
And you may not remember this, but God spoke to the children of Israel from Mount Sinai with a voice that they could hear. And the people got so scared about that voice that they said, Moses, you go up on the mountain and talk to God and we will listen to you. I just think it's so amazing that they did not want to hear God's voice. And when it did, it terrified them. And, you know, how loud must that voice be? He was on top of Mount Sinai speaking to about three and a half million people. Now, was it just loud or was it amplified to people or what was going on? We don't know for sure. But the entire congregation heard it. And they're basically fearful of hearing God's word and say, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't want to talk to him. Uh, in Deuteronomy 4.11, it said that Moses entered into the dark, the thick darkness and the cloud. Very interesting that Moses had enough relationship with God to want to go where God was in spite of the fear that was in, involved in it. Huh? Thick darkness? Just a dark cloud? Well, a, thick dark. a thick darkness. Well, I thought you said thick. No, a thick cloud. Uh, and basically, it was just a big cloud that obscured the glory of God so people could look at him. Otherwise, they would have been, there would have been an execution. You know, they would have died from looking at him. But Moses knew of God's mercy and grace and was able to walk before God's presence. Huh? Will it always be like that? No. Just for us in our human human status, we can't we as humans can't can't stand before God. Right. Once we're out of the body, we should see him in his, as he is, because it describes him sitting on the throne in heaven and people around the throne worshiping him and able to look at him at that time. Because we're not number one, at that point we're also purified, we're glorified, we are made perfect. One of the biggest reasons we can't stand before God at this point in time is because we are sinners. And when you stand before the holy righteousness of God, the conviction of your sin can come so strong that you're overwhelmed. And this is the problem. Moses apparently was, had been one with God. He understood the forgiveness of God, the, the uh, forgiveness, the forgiveness that is, was his and was able to stand before God. And we have the same thing. The more we, the closer we are to God, the more we understand forgiveness, the closer we can draw to God, and the more of his glory we can see and experience even on earth. Uh, because we need to understand when we become a Christian, we put on the righteousness of Christ. And what does the Father see? He sees perfection. Now, how close we are living that perfection is another story. That is our sanctification that we're going through. All right? When we're saved, God justifies us. He says, you are perfect. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ, and that's how he sees us, even though we are being sanctified. Every day, every hour, every year, every decade, God is drawing us closer and closer to him and making us more like himself, more perfect. When we die or are raptured, as the case might be, 
then we will be glorified and God will make us who he said, he, said, said we were from the very beginning and we will then be perfect. Then we'll be able to stand in his presence with no problem because then we'll have perfection living through us. But one of the things that we find, the closer we draw to God, the more we understand his glory and the more we can be in his presence, the more we want to be in his presence. And that is what is so important. One of the marks of Christianity and being a good Christian is to want to be in the presence of God, want to be with the body of Christ. And this is something that's very important. If somebody's not wanting that aspect of the, of the relationship, then I have to say, does this person really know you, God? If they can cut off their finger and stick it off in the shelf someplace and be the, the lone finger out there without the body, there's something wrong. It doesn't work that way. Now, I understand that the body is hard. Any family is hard. Every family has members in the family that people don't like. Or, and then they have the favorite uncle. And then they have the disfavored uncle, you know, the one that you don't want to invite to anything. You know, they're obnoxious and you know, crude. And you know, if anything can go wrong, they're going to be in the center. And then you've got the one that's always the favorite, the favorite everybody wants to be around but they're all part of the family. This is going to be true even in the church. We bring people into the church and they need to learn to grow and become more like God. They're going to be a little irritating at first sometimes because they're going to say the things and do the things that nobody else would do. And hopefully they're going to grow eventually and grow out of it. But they're going to be somebody that a lot of people look at and say, yeah, not them again. Yeah, well, we're still to love them. They're part of the body. We love them. And they, need to, they do need to learn. You know, when somebody first gets saved, they don't know the language that they're not supposed to use. You know, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain is something that's very interesting and so easy to do. That people use God's name in vain all the time. And that is not just using it as a curse word. It's using it lightly. You know, uh, we have the statement, oh my God. You know, you know, and it's not, you're not praying to God. You're using his name lightly. Uh, you know, and we need to be very careful about how we use the name of God because it is something that is so precious. And we should not be using it lightly. We should not be using it in a flippant way. And all of that goes into keeping his name holy. It's a righteous name. You know, how do we act? How do we behave? You know, it's so important as we share with, with God on it. And God says that he's going to let the, the evil and the, and the righteous grow together in the church. And the angels on the last day will sort through who's saved and who's not saved. Our job is not to figure out who's saved and not saved. Our job is just to give the gospel message out and teach and people then have to make their decision before God. There are some people I'm pretty sure are saved when I meet them. You know, and there are some people I look at and go, I'm not so sure. But it's not my job to judge. You know, all I can do is say, what is the fruit in this person's life? Are they showing that they love God? Are they showing service to God? Are they showing a love, love for God's people? If they do, those are all signs that people are saved. If they're not... I can't say they're not or not. James says, show me, your, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
Nowhere in there did he say you could not be saved by, you know, by not having the works, but he said you're not going to be able to prove it. You're not going to prove your salvation without works. And, and works don't necessarily prove salvation. I've known some people that are very nice, very kind, give you the shirt off their back and do more for you than some Christians would do for you and not be saved and not know God. So works don't prove that you're a Christian, but they are, if you have a testimony, they are what should be there to show that you are. But you know, we need to be able to just love people because it's all God's grace. Not by works of righteousness, uh, but by his faith. You know, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast in Ephesians. You know, God is not looking for us doing great works because that is not what saves us. It doesn't even help us. But it does show forth that when we're serving for God, we will do works. And that's the important side of it. It's kind of a very strange story that God has. He goes, our works aren't, aren't the proof that we're saved, but our works will be the evidence of, that we are saved. And we need to be able to see all of this going on. And it says, as Solomon said, I, he is dwelling in a thick darkness. And he goes, but I have built a house, a habitation for you, a place for your dwelling forever. So Solomon says, God... Uh, you dwell in thick darkness, but I built you a house. Later on, he's going to say, God, you filled the entire universe, and we built you a house. Solomon is fully aware of the craziness of what they're doing. God, you are the God of all this world, the whole universe, and yet we built you a house for you to dwell in. You can't fit in this house. He's going, you know, you're, the whole earth is your footstool, and we built you a house on the earth for you to live in. Now, uh, when you think about that, you know, you're going, okay, God, put your little toe in this, in this house. It'll fill the whole house because the footstool, the earth is your footstool. Uh, you know, so it is kind of a very funny thing. And Solomon is kind of engaging in this whole, you know, almost comedy look. God, we have built you a house. It is your dwelling forever. And he says, and the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel and the congregation of Israel stood. So first he's looking at the temple and he's worshiping God saying, God, we have built you a house. Then he turns to the people and he gives them a blessing. And this is something that is very interesting. The congregation stood. Now, all through the Old Testament, through Jesus' day, and probably even into today's time with the Jews, when they go to the sanctuary, they go to the temple, they're being taught, they stand. For the whole time they're being taught. And the teacher sits. And I don't understand it, but that is the way that they did it. Solomon is kneeling, and the people are standing. And he is going to give them their blessing. And all through the scriptures, when you and keep a watch for it, when you see them coming together, you'll see them standing. Uh, Josiah reads the word of God to them from sunrise till noon, about eight, six hours of time, 
And it says the people stood the entire time that the law was being read to them. You know, why? Standing is a position of honor. When you stand before somebody, you're honoring them. And the other position of honoring is to go from the other extreme of standing <laughs> to completely bowed, bowed down. And so the people are standing, and Solomon tells them, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying. So he says, God has done this. Now, who actually did the work? Solomon and all the people and the 72,000 people that he had hired, you know, conscripted, not he hired, but conscripted <laughs> to build this. Um, made them slaves, basically. He didn't hire them. He didn't give them offer. He, they were the aliens in there, and he made them work. Uh, so, but he says, so he's done all this work, but he says it is God who did the work. This is what we always have to realize. When we're serving God, it is God who's actually doing the work, if it's worth anything. When, when I teach, when I preach, it has to be God teaching or it's not worth anything. If you're, you know, cleaning the sanctuary, then it's God cleaning, you know, you're working toward God. If you're sharing a gospel message, it's God being lifted up and working through you. You know, if you're cleaning the property, you know, cleaning the weeds, and there are plenty of weeds in, the, in Arizona to clean all the time, then you're, you're serving God if you're doing it right. And this is where some people have a problem. They're going, well, I am just so burnt out doing this. I'm tired of doing this. Somebody else should be doing this. You're working for the wrong reason if that's the case. Now, I understand there's going to be certain days when you're just not feeling good and it's, it's hard. But if you go through weeks and months of feeling that way, I would say stop doing it. It's not your job. And you're doing it for the wrong reason. Because I can't, I can't say that there's every single day that I walk in here that I'm all thrilled to be, be here doing the teaching. And the, usually it's Saturday when I'm doing all the paperwork side of, the, side of it. You know, the teaching part I love. I love standing up and I, you know, on Sunday morning. I love teaching. And it's very rare that I feel burdened by that side of it. What I do feel burdened down is creating bulletins and, and handouts and schedules and, and all of that stuff. That can get on me, but even that most of the time I love. But there are certain days I'm going, I would rather do anything but this. But overall, I love doing it because it is part of the job. It is part of what needs to be done to truly be able to draw people into the worship. And so we have all of this going on, and he says, God hands fulfilled what he promised David. Has God told you a vision of something? God will fulfill it. He will make it happen one way or the other. Now, sometimes we look at it and say, God, I don't understand how, how this is going to happen. Everything seems to be going wrong. Now, you have Joseph. He was given a vision that his brothers would bow down before him and his mom and dad would bow down to him as well. His brothers hated that idea so much because they were all older. All, all ten of his brothers hated the idea that David, uh, Joseph thought that they, they would bow down to him. They sold him into slavery. And he was in bondage for 13 years. Now, 
You think about anything that God has asked you to do. Have any of us had to wait 13 years for God to accomplish anything that he's asked us to do? David has this vision. God, you told me my brothers were going to bow down to me. I don't understand this, but my, you said my brothers are going to bow down. Then he's promoted. 13 years still is promotion. There's seven years of plenty. He still has not seen his brothers. Two years into the famine, his brothers finally show up. 22 years from the time he was given the vision to the time that it was fulfilled. I think they had more patience back then. Uh, I don't know about that so much, but... uh, But he trusted God for 22 years. And can you imagine how he felt when he saw his brothers bowed down before him? All right, God, you have finally made this vision come true. And my brothers don't even recognize me. Yeah. He could have been so mean to them at that point, and yet he showed God's love and, and mercy to them all through that, all through that trial. Huh? You think it might, it might have spread it out 22 years so he'd actually feel that way? Maybe God trained him to do a lot of things during that 22 years, so it could very well be that he was not ready. If his brothers had bowed down before him, he might have been so proud and and arrogant that he would not have accepted it in the right spirit. Uh, And this is what I've seen in my life. There's things that I've had to wait a long time to see the fruition of, but I look and say, all right, God, you prepared me through this, and you prepared me for this, and you prepared me for this, so now I am more ready to be doing what you've asked me to do. Right. Or first was told that it was going to happen. I'd be careful how I would say that, but yes, God's waiting for us to grow enough to, to do it. Uh, but it is us wait, learning to wait on God. So it's more us not knowing how to wait on God you know, than God waiting on us. He's just waiting for us to learn to wait on him and trust him. Because that's the important part. My, my place is to just learn to wait and trust in God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on into your own understanding. So all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. The hard part for us is learning to trust. Trust in the Lord and not my own ways. Or you weren't ready to bend your heart yeah, to him at that yeah, time. Um, but the way she said it, I mean, yeah. understood what she said. Yeah. I mean, and I'll never forget that. And that's the whole thing. It's on his time, not our time. We don't know his calendar. We don't know his schedule. And but his time is basically, his time is used to groom us to where we're supposed to be. You start reading most of the biographies of Christian Christian uh, leaders and stuff, most of them don't really get a, a real focus on God until they're 40, 50, 60 years old because it takes God that long to get them out of the way. To get them out of the way and, and teach them. And he starts using them a, 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 a long before that, but their big part of their ministry doesn't start until they get out of the way and their ego gets out of the way and then God can really start using them in a mighty, 
mighty way because they are no longer in there. Because for most young people, if God uses them too quickly, they get arrogant and proud. Look at all that I've accomplished. Because that's how they are in the first place. Now, we still have that tendency even when we get older. Now, God starts blessing us and a big ministry gets built around us, whatever it might be, you know, whatever big is. And then we're going, oh, God, look at, look at the ministry that I built. And God's saying, well, I thought I built it, but uh, let's, let's show you what you do without me. And that's when things fall apart. When God steps back and says, oh, okay, you think you built this? Let's see what happens when I step back and, and let things happen as they normally would. And this is where we need to stay humble. We need to stay prepared that God needs to break our pride. Nothing is said about Joseph negative, but you know, I think Joseph had a pretty uh, big pride streak of pride. What fool would tell his brothers, older brothers, that you're going to bow down to me? I had this dream, and you're all going to bow down to me. It's a dream from God. I don't think that he was saying that very humbly. All right. I think he, had, he was dad's favorite son. That made him proud all to start with, and his brothers are much older than he is. And they're going, uh-huh. You know, any older brother told that you're going to worship me, you know, you're going to bow down to me, is going to look at their young brother and say, okay, let me show you how, how who's going to bow as they make them bow. Okay, uh, the older brother is not going to look at this as in a favorable way. Uh, and so all of this comes down to, and, and Solomon is saying, God fulfilled his word. He fulfilled what he told David. And then he goes into a little bit of history. Verse 5, since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among the tribes of Israel to build a house in. So God's saying, I never told you to make me, a, make me a temple. I never told you to pick one city that was going to be my city. All right? This is what God told David. When David says, God, I want to build you a temple. God said, I never asked for one. I've never asked for a temple. I didn't want to be stuck in one place. And since the time that Jesus has death, burial, and resurrection, God lives in his people so that he lives everywhere across the world again, not just in the temple, which he never lived in the temple, but the Jews literally had this idea that God was present in the temple and basically meant that he couldn't be present anywhere else. Even though they had this idea that he was everywhere and that he fulfilled everything, everything was focused on the temple. It's time to worship God, go to the temple. Time to pray, go to the temple. Uh, they didn't have this idea of I could worship God wherever, wherever I'm at. Now some did. We see it, we see it through the priests, uh, the prophets and everything. But in general, the people all believed the only place you could worship God was at the temple. What did the Samaritan woman say to Jesus? It says, your people believe that the only place you can worship God is on that, that in the temple. We believe that here is a place to worship. Now, the, the Samaritans had another problem. They had a different mountain that they believed in, but they still had the same problem. God was only worshipped in one place. This is a sad thing. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. We can worship God anywhere we're at, just as easily as we can 
You know, sometimes Christians think, well, I, I can worship God better in church than I can at home. I hope nobody in our church ever thinks that way. But there are many people that do believe that you really can't worship God unless you're in church. That's where the songs are sung. That's where the preacher preaches. That, that's a special place. We've got to make sure we're ready to worship. What is wrong with worshiping at home? What is wrong with worshiping in your car? You know, people will say, well, I can worship anywhere. And I agree with you, you can worship anywhere. You know, and usually they're saying, well, I can worship on the mountain while I'm camping. I can worship on the lake while I'm, while I'm fishing, I can go wherever, when I'm hunting. But I'm going, yes, I agree. You can worship God anywhere. Are you? Most of them aren't. They're just using that as an excuse. Well, I don't have to come to church to worship. And I agree, you don't have to come to church to worship. But wherever you are, are you worshiping? But it is going to be true that without worshiping with the corporate body of Christ, your worship is not going to be as strong as it will be you know, elsewhere. And then the idea is if you have a fire and you take this nice bright white coal out of it and you have tongs and you pull it out of the center of the fire and put it on the side of it and it was nice and hot, it'll stay hot for a little while. But very quickly, it's going to go dead. And this is the problem with Christians who say, well, I, can, I don't like the body of Christ. I don't want to be around the body of Christ. I'm going, okay, you may be on fire. You might even be a Christian. But you are going to go cold. You need the body of Christ. We need the corporate uh, coming together of the church to make us one and be able to say, lift it up. Because as we're told by Solomon, if one fall, woe to him if he's alone. He won't be able to get back up. But where two or three are, they can lift him up. And this is where we are. When we are in a body of Christ, a local church, if you fall, you fall away, people are there to say, you've been missed. Is there anything we can do to help you? And we need to be able to reach out to one another and say just those little things. What can we do to help? What can we do? You know, Come on back, you're missed. Just being told that you missed is a big, big step. We've, we've missed you. Come on back and help us you know, be with us again. Do, do your body. Jonathan told David that his seat would be missed if it was empty at the feast. You know, and David says, nope, your father's not going to miss me at all. And sure enough, King Saul missed David. Now, he still wanted to kill him. <laughs> But he missed David's presence. David's seat was empty, and Saul made a comment on it. And that's when Jonathan said, well, he asked me for permission to go, go to a feast for, for his parents and, and, and offer a sacrifice. The reward for Jonathan was a spear thrown at him by, by Saul, uh, because he said that he knew where David was. We want to be careful because God does bring hardship into our lives when we follow him. Most of it is to teach us, to grow us, to put us in dependence on him. But all through the scriptures, we read how people's lives were turned upside down by following God. And I don't care which character you pick in the Bible, their life, you know, let's go to uh, Joseph. His life is turned upside down. He gets put into slavery. Look at Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. Her life was really turned upside down because it was not a good thing to be a mother out of wedlock at that time. 
She deserved to be stoned. And it was Joseph, whose life was turned upside down by accepting this, who kept her from being stoned because he took her as his wife anyway. And what were the people talking about at the water cooler? You know, uh, Joseph and Mary must have had a really good time for him to keep her as his wife, you know, that you know, it can't have been another man's child, so it must have been him and her. You know, what day did they get together without chaperones that uh, brought this about? Their life was turned upside down. Their reputations were shot by being obedient to God. You know, and we don't want to do things that destroy a testimony, but we also have to understand that we will not have a good witness with people because we are not going to be like them. When we don't go out doing the things they do, go out drinking and drugging and sleeping around and all these things, people are going to look at us and what do they say about us? Well, they think they're too good for us. They think they're better than us. Now, they appreciate what we do on one side, but at the same time, they're under conviction. And when you're under conviction, you usually strike out and attack somebody else. Usually the person is bringing the conviction towards you. And so they will attack us. They will try to make it our fault that they're feeling convicted. But it is God's spirit coming on them. And we just need to know that when we are Christians, our lives may get totally turned upside down. You know, sometimes more, sometimes less. And all of that depends on what God knows that you can go through, what he knows you need. One thing about being put through the ringer is it prepares us for something. What? I can't always tell. But you know, I've seen in my life, God has put me through the ringer in many areas to prepare me to be the servant that I am today. And we need to be able to understand when God is putting us through trials and tribulations, he's got a plan. We may not understand it. He's preparing us for something. What that something is, I don't know. But he does and he has a plan. And then the last part of the verse 5 says, not only did he not choose a city, he says, I did not even choose any man to be my ruler. Before the king started, God chose judges to rule Israel as they needed them. And God was their ruler. The people went to, Saul, uh, to Samuel and said, give us a king like all the other nations. We want to be just like everybody else. We're tired of being different. Has that ever crossed your mind about being a Christian? I'm tired of being different from all the other people. God calls us to be different. If we choose to be like the rest of the world, we're going to suffer the consequences of being like the rest of the world. They asked for a king, and God told them, all right, if you get a king, the king is going to take one-tenth of all that you possess. He's going to take your best cooks, your, best, your strongest men, your best farmers, and, and put them to service for him instead of for yourselves. Over and over again, God tried to dissuade them from that and go, no, nope, we want to be like the rest of the world. There's a consequence for being like the world, and that is the consequence of death. Not necessarily spiritual death, but there's lots of death involved with sin. Our, our reputation, our, our, our way of life, consequences. People who go out and get drunk and then wrap their car around a tree and end up being 
disabled for the rest of their life because of the injuries they did, or worse yet, kill somebody and have to have that conscience on their conscience. Maybe it's something even more insidious. You raise up a family while you're drinking and drugging and your kids get worse than you do. And you know that it's your fault because you set the bad example. Now, all of these things come down and this is where we need to learn to be able to accept God's forgiveness and know that the consequences are just something we're going to have to endure, but people also are responsible for their decisions. Now, we are not responsible for the decisions of our kids and our neighbors and our friends. We have influence on them, yes, but they still have responsibility. And it's very interesting, there are very godly families who have raised their kids in the church and read their Bibles and taught their kids and their kids have become real hellions and gone off the deep end. There's other people that were really terrible, awful parents and their kids you know, got saved and, and became very strong Christians. In spite of all the bad example they have, people are responsible for their own consequences, uh, their own decisions. And so we always want to keep this in mind. Yes, I want to set a good example for my kids. Yes, I want to be you know, a good example for the church. But each person is responsible for their own decisions. Now, granted, if I'm a good example, that helps them make a good decision. All right? If you're from a good family, the chances are of being a good individual are better than if you're in a bad family. But each individual is still going to be responsible for their own decision. And we need to understand that at all times. We can't blame ourselves. Even if we were bad parents, we can't blame ourselves. You know, because we did, hopefully we did the best we can. There's all kinds of mistakes that I made as a parent. All kinds of mistakes I make as a, as a husband. But hopefully I'm learning from them. Hopefully I'm growing from them and learning how to do better. And for each one of us, that is where we are. We go forward from where he is. We put everything under. Jesus, uh, God told us that he will restore the years that the canker worm destroyed. You know, which means that even when we messed everything up, God can still redeem it and make it turn around. And that is our hope. That is our, our great praise. God, I totally messed up this area of my life. I'm putting it all in your hands for you to redeem. And then watch for the redemption to come out and see how God will redeem it. We're going to end here. It's a very strange place to end, but we're out of time. Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, help us to really see you in all that we do. Help us to turn to you for redemption and forgiveness. Help us to see you in action. And Lord, even most importantly, to understand, God, you are always good. And you have a plan for us that is good. And help us to always hold on and trust that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23 we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? 
Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.